Hi everyone, welcome back to the Mirador Podcast. My original intent for this episode was to break down the purpose of the Congressional Confirmation of Electoral College vote counts and give Miramani students some background and context to the discussion of what it would mean if members of Congress voted against the confirmation of the Electoral College votes. My plan worked perfectly right until about 12.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time when I got the New York Times alert that a mob had stormed the Capitol and that members of Congress were sheltering in place while Vice President Pence had been evacuated by his security team. As someone who tries to keep their ear to the ground when it comes to national politics, I had done enough research to understand that there was a large amount of anger and passion from Trump supporters over the election results. So, in light of current events, I have a new episode for you today. We are going to look at the before, during, and after of the Capitol break-in and examine these events from a historical context. My hope is to provide students with an understanding of what happened and what it might mean for the coming days. Alright, let's start from the beginning. Before any formal discussion had begun, nearly a dozen senators had voiced their plans to object to the certification of the electoral votes within their states. Most of them cited voter fraud as a reason for their objection. No evidence has been found to corroborate these claims. By early afternoon in D.C., two major events had already taken place. Before noon, Trump gave a fiery speech to an audience of devoted supporters in which he urged them to march to Congress to defend what he still insisted was a stolen election. Shortly after this speech was concluded, around 1 o'clock, the Senate opened the floor for debate. Meanwhile, in the Senate, most notable among those who spoke were Senators Ted Cruz of Arizona and Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. What was interesting about Cruz's speech was that his proposed third option to the Electoral College issue. He called for Congress to enact a 15-member Electoral Oversight Committee composed of equal parts members from the House, Senate, and the Supreme Court, who would examine the results over a period of 10 days and then report back with their findings. Prior to Wednesday, almost a dozen senators had confirmed their support for this method. McConnell, one of the president's most staunch supporters, took a strong stance against his colleagues, stating that without sufficient evidence to prove the allegations of illegality, a vote against the certification of the votes would be a vote against rulings of the court, the states, and the voters. Shortly after McConnell finished speaking, the action started. A pro-Trump mob broke into the Capitol, marking the second time in U.S. history that the Capitol has been breached since the invasion of the British during the War of 1812. These are the key takeaways from the hours that followed. I should note here that I am recording this early afternoon on Thursday the 7th, so the events about to be listed may not touch on everything depending on when you are listening to this episode. One civilian woman was shot and it is in critical condition. It was confirmed she was shot by Capitol Police and she died a few hours later. A suspected explosive device was found near the headquarters of the Republican National Convention. Shortly after, a similar package was discovered near the Democratic National Convention and the area was evacuated. President-elect Joe Biden went on national television around 3 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, denouncing members of the mob and calling on President Trump to make a statement. In total, 12 injuries were sustained requiring medical condition and five people were hospitalized. President Trump did not address the nation aside from a message on his Twitter account calling for peace whilst simultaneously reiterating his false claims that the election was stolen. 
the National Guard, FBI, and Secret Service were deployed, and by 6.30 Pacific Standard Time, officials reported that the Capitol had been secured. The Senate was able to resume voting near midnight in D.C. and finished certifying votes around 3 o'clock in the morning. This morning, a New York Times report confirmed that President Trump's cabinet met shortly after the Capitol was breached. This set off speculation of whether or not the 25th Amendment will be evoked. This theory has only grown this morning as top Senate Democrat leader Chuck Schumer called for the use of the 25th to remove Trump from office. A total of 14 arrests were made in D.C. last night during and following the breach. This has garnered strong criticism of the D.C. and Capitol Police Force after dozens of arrests were made during the Black Lives Matter protests in the city over the summer, in which participants were overwhelmingly peaceful compared to the violent behavior of those who stormed the Capitol. Crazy times. At the risk of being overly cliché, what were your initial reactions yes. to what happened? Well, I think, first of all, it's clear, it, it, it should be noted that uh, you're, when you become a teacher, and this has happened in my, in more than I wish had happened in my entire teaching career. That has not been that long, but mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's, it's spanned a little bit. Um, where when you when something when a when a development is continuing to go on as you're teaching, you kind of uh, you have to like mute your emotions as much as possible um, because you're still teaching and you're mm-hmm. in control of a classroom. Yeah. Um, and so I distinctly remember watching like the NBA season get canceled. I like I remember that kind of like swirl of emotions where you're trying to keep it, you're trying to keep, you're trying to be the calmest person in the room. Right. When I found out what was happening at the Capitol, uh, that one might've been the angriest I've ever been. Um, I, I care very deeply about the country that I live in. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I teach U.S. history. I like to think that I'm a pretty patriotic guy when it comes to to uh, my my love of country and and seeing uh, in terms of you know my initial reaction, um, my first kind of thought was concern uh, for the people in the building. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I again, regardless of their politics or, or, you know, anything like that, like my first concern was of, of, of the members of Congress, like Ilhan Omar, who are, are Muslim. And, yeah. and I just know that a lot of rhetoric has been thrown specifically at them or representatives like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Rashida Tlaib. Um, there are, there are others that I'm not naming, um, but, but because they're not coming to my memory, but, but members of Congress like that who have been the target of this particular group um, of, of uh, you know, supporters of the president who have, who that my initial fear was their actual physical safety. Yeah. Um, yeah. As well as every other member of Congress. Um, and once it became clear that they were safe, it then became, I think it dawned on me what was happening, right? Mm-hmm. What was going on? And then turning, and that was all before I ever actually turned on the TV. So um, seeing the images of that, uh, at, 
it turned anger into uh, just pure sadness and, and, and heartbreak and just still anger, but, mm-hmm. but a different kind. Um, so initial reactions, that's what I would say. Um, you know, obviously it's weird to go through that while also teaching. Um, but, but that's kind of where I was at least mm-hmm. <laughs> yesterday. Today's Thursday. So yeah, yesterday. yesterday. It definitely, it felt very surreal, like watching a movie a little bit, at least from a student perspective. I felt like I was watching a movie until I started to look at the photos that came out of the Capitol. And then I was like, it's real. There's people there. Yeah. And I think one of the things um, that's, that's really interesting, I know we've had a conversation already um, on this podcast. If you go, Uh, check out one of the earlier episodes. We talked about kind of growing up in this polarized era, like just, you know, this being your formative years Mm -hmm. of politics and and having it be as polarized as it is. And I thought I actually did. That was one of my first thoughts actually was kind of talking about that because I could not imagine what it's like to have my political identity in what are your most formative years being formed around events like this. I mean, it's just, it, the U S Capitol has never been seized since the war of 1812. Yes. Yes. Right. So, you know, the last time was 1814 when the British sacked the city, burned down the white house Mm -hmm. and, and, and seized the, seized the Capitol building. I, I don't think we need to explain how different our country is between now and then, but it is a, a stark reminder that this is not, oh, I can't like, you know, kind of pie in the sky. Yeah, this is kind of a partisan issue. Like this is dangerous. Like this actually, like that act is is completely unprecedented um, in, a, in a way that's really, really scary. Yeah. And I actually think this connects to what I was going to ask next. But when the news started to come out that this was happening, we heard there were protesters. We heard there was a mob. We heard extremists. We heard terrorists. There's a variety of language being used. Um, Right. As a student journalist trying to make some sort of comprehensive content about this, what is the language that needs to be used to describe these people, what they did, in your opinion? So, right. So in terms of kind of how you describe the order, the like an individual um, who are is, you know, making their way through the Capitol building, maybe grabbing something on their way out, um, you know, that language is tough. That language is hard. I know mm-hmm. that, the, you know the the new york or sorry the san francisco chronicle called it an insurrection so you can call them insurrectionists um you could call them you, i mean you you could call them protesters i don't know if you if if i would agree with you calling them protesters yeah. um one of the things that i do want to bring up though rather than kind of just pointing at some of these individuals is that the kind of idea of terrorism terrorism is a scary word it mm-hmm. it carries weight with it right and so I understand that it's very difficult to label something in which you are watching, you know, people with American flags on, you know, just walking through a cap like that. It's difficult for a lot of people to label that as terrorism. Right. But I have the I have kind of the FBI, um, you know, the the FBI and federal code of regulations 
or Code of Federal Regulations, which says that there is no single universally accepted definition of terrorism, but the terrorism is defined in the Code of Federal Regulations as the unlawful use of force and violence against persons or property to intimidate or coerce a government, the civilian population, Mm -hmm. or any segment thereof in furtherance of of political or social objectives. Had this happened on the other side of the globe, I think we, we would define it that way. Our government would define it that way. So, you know, the language matters there. Our conversation then shifted towards a key facet of Wednesday's events. The contrast in police treatment towards the majority white mob on Capitol Hill compared to the way that deep D.C. police treated the mostly peaceful protesters of the Black Lives Matter movement over the summer. It would be... <laughs> irresponsible and ignorant to not to not say that this probably would not have happened if it wasn't a massive mob of of mostly white people yes right that 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 white privilege is born out of the fact that it it is born into some of the language that we use that that part of the reason why people the media you know people watching this event and commenting on it are, are, are uneasy and uncomfortable with calling it terrorism, even though the Code of Federal Regulations clearly states that what happened was terrorism. exactly what, what they define as terrorism, is because it's a mob of white people. And, and again, I, I don't know whether, how controversial something like that is in, in a place like Miramani, where I would hope that our conversations about racial equity allow for us to kind of at least approach understanding, mm-hmm. you know, society, the way that society kind of protects that. But it, that's the way it is. Like that, that would, if this was a, if this was a mob of non-white people, we would have had a massively different reaction. So this is kind of a umbrella question, but based on your study of history, okay, what pattern does this event fit into? It's yeah, I know. There is no pattern that this fits into. I mean, there, there, there is no pattern. There is no precedent. There is no event that you can point to and say, wow, I can't like, this is just like that. Right. Um, there have been demonstrations in, in Washington, D.C. before. Uh, some of them have, have fallen into uh, into some kind of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who have protested presidential elections. There have been members of Congress who have, have objected to an electoral count before. Um, but an event of this magnitude where... It has is is completely unprecedented in history, and I just want to kind of run you through a couple of case studies from modern American history because I think that's important. I don't know if yeah. we should compare our electoral, you know, what's going on right now to anything going on in like the 1830s or 20s, only because there are two different Americas, right? Yes. But so, for example, in 18 in or I just said that I wasn't going to do that in 1960 in the election between John John F Kennedy Jr. and Richard Nixon, where mm-hmm. John, JFK won. Yes. That election, right? It it was contested. People thought people wanted to yell fraud. Yeah. Richard Nixon, who would later be then voted into office, completely disavowed those calls 
of fraud in the election because of how dangerous that is that is to democracy yeah richard nixon somebody who (laughs) now very famously is 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 known for being it's it's not one of our most liked presidents in history right um in 2000 right there was the 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 conflict between Al Gore and, and, and George Bush and whether or not a Florida recount should take place, there were calls that, 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 that George Bush was not legitimately uh, reelected. But nothing... Nothing like this? ...ever turned violently. Right. And in 2004, when, when, when uh, members of Congress called that for the electoral counts to be you know, essentially thrown out or changed... The candidate at the time, John Kerry, completely disavowed them, said, I want absolutely nothing to do with this. They do not represent me. They do not represent the campaign. Because, again, we understood how dangerous that is to, mm-hmm. to say, because we don't like the results, we want to throw out the, 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 the entire vote. So, so there is no precedent for that in, in this kind of way. Um, so, yeah, in terms of historical patterns... Maybe there is one. Maybe I haven't seen it mm-hmm. yet, but, but I, I, there are, to me, there are nothing, there's nothing that compares to this. Um, but I think it is also, we have to kind of point at the rhetoric that got us here in the first place. Right. Yes. And this isn't just during the kind of contentious 2016 campaign and the rhetoric that's been used since this is rhetoric that has been used and has become more popular that people think that they can, they can play to, to their base of voters who have become more and more radicalized by, by, by social media, by conspiracy theories, by, by misinformation. And, and, and this rhetoric has become increasingly popular. And so it, it, this was kind of a ticking time bomb in a way. And we just, this just happened to be when it went off, Mm -hmm. I guess. And, and so I think it's easy to point to the one, you know, that day, you know, the events of the day and say, that's the reason why it happened. But I think we also have to look at not just from 2016 to now, but, you know, essentially since, you know, the birth of the internet and before then too, this rhetoric being used of the country being stolen from you and, mm-hmm. and that we, you know, we have to take our country back like that kind of language in that the imagery and it invokes is inherently aggressive. And when you use it for decades, it builds up. I don't know how you can't expect uh, some kind of violent outburst of it. I wanted to leave you with Mr. Avery's closing statement on what he wanted students to hear about these events. This is what he had to say. It is very easy for us to to think about the rise of somebody, the the the, the effect that 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 fascism can have in a world away, in a time away. It, you know, in 1930s Germany, when we see, you know, like that's never been the United States that we know. That isn't, you know, many 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 people came out and said, "This is not the United States I know. This is not what the United States is." Um, 
And I share that sentiment because it's hopeful. It's optimistic. Mm -hmm. This is not what I think America stands for. This is not what I want my country to stand for. This is not, I mean, again, like not even getting into, you know, conservative or liberal, this is not what our country is about. Um, However, the idea that this is not who we are, that we are not these people, that we would never allow for this to happen is uh, largely ahistorical. The idea that fascism cannot succeed here is largely ahistorical. And 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 the, the instance I point to is in 1939, there's a 20,000-person rally in Madison Square Garden called the German-American Bund um, that was, by definition, a Nazi rally um, held where the Knicks are playing. There was a Rangers game the, the night after. Um, I can send you materials on this as well for you to, for you to kind of yes. check my work. But When I look at a 20,000 person rally that is calling up, that is using the exact same anti-Semitic racist language used by Hitler at the same time, and I see 20,000 people in Madison Square Garden return a Nazi salute, and I see in 2017 a rally in Charles, in, in South Charles Carolina, Hill. in which fascist symbolism is not accidentally used. It's not like they didn't know what it stood for. Um, and then I see those symbols and and that and 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 those groups again in 2021. Mm-hmm. It's not the majority of the population. It is not what my country should stand for. It's not what your country should stand for. It is not what we want to be. But until we actually figure, until we are actually willing to accept that this exists and it is a problem in our country, and that we this is something that is the result of a long period. Of mm-hmm. things like white supremacy that had that are just embedded in our country, this will never stop. And so it is, I guess my closing argument, not to get too preachy, would be that it is incredibly easy. And I did it yesterday. I, I am inc- I am guilty of this just like everybody else is. It is guilty to turn off the news. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it is easy to do that. It is easy to not pay attention. It is easy to say that politics don't matter, that you don't care, that I don't see myself reflected in it, and that my vote doesn't count because I'm a California Republican, and that you know, you know, my like electoral college is decided, or whatever any kind of person will say in instances like this. Mm-hmm. It is incredibly easy to do so, and that is exactly what allows for these things to happen that that it is not a population which 60 percent of people agree with what is going on it is when 30 percent agree and 30 percent don't care that's all for today Special thanks in this episode to Jackson Avery and to the Mirador EICs for their assistance and patience. Thanks for listening.